song number 31, and may we say at this time how delighted we are to have each and every person here, that all is as well as it is with you and me to permit us to assemble and gather as we are this beautiful Sunday morning. And we're also happy certainly to always welcome our visitors and guests that come our way. We simply would wish to be a friendly congregation expressive of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're thankful indeed for every person that's here. The lesson entitled this morning may have been one that captured your attention. In so doing, works of Christ lost in hell. Now, there are two parts of that title, obviously collective of the following. Works of Christ sound to be so notable, so worthwhile, so wonderfully good. But on the other hand, lost in hell carries with it the thought of disobedience and the will of dissatisfaction toward God. And yet, as Brother Dennis read just a moment ago in the passage before us, both those ideas are right squarely put in our consideration. I'd like to begin the lesson with some introductory appreciations, and then we'll launch into a more careful study of that trio of verses. I've listed for your thought on this particular slide that isn't it so that the Word of God encourages you and me and motivates you and me, and it does so in a wide variety of ways. After all, there are those passages that appeal to our understanding as to how much God has loved us and how careful He has been in presenting to us that which we need. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Didn't Paul, writing to the church at Rome, to them say, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 So indeed, there are many passages that remind us and almost bring us to appreciate if God could do that for us, is it the least we could do for Him? To serve Him faithfully? To walk hand in hand with Him? But may I say, there are other motivations that sometimes are presented also on the biblical page. One of those is what I would call a surprise. Have you ever been genuinely surprised? I know that all of us, in all likelihood, have. There are times, perhaps, when someone shares with you some unexpected good news, so much so that it rings inside your being to the point that it brings you to celebration. Maybe we've all known moments like that in life. But there are also times that news can be bad. It's unexpected, admittedly, but it's terrible news. It shakes you to your core. That kind of surprise can often make you numb. It can leave you somewhat without the mental capacity to do much else, at least for a little while. May I suggest to all of us that that is one of the motivations that the Bible also uses on occasion, and our text before us today is one of them. Can you imagine the kind of surprise that we're now about to read? Revisiting verse number 21 of Matthew chapter 7, I would invite us to step through this set of verses and do so verse by verse. We'll pause and make some comments as we go, but our goal will be to imagine ourselves in the very audience when Jesus first preached it. How did they react and what did they think as they heard Jesus make statements like this? Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Might you and I remember, this was fairly early in the Lord's public ministry. That is to say, this was really one of the earliest sermons it likely seems that He preached in any at least extensive way. Isn't it remarkable to hear then these, these words that ring like this? As the Lord captured their attention and as He spoke so definitively toward them, we already know that there were other things He had shared with them to this point. Early on in this same presentation, I've asked you to consider a few things at the top of that slide. Things that in fact are remindful of various attitudes and various perspectives in life. Jesus pronounced a blessing, did He not? Upon those that are poor in heart. Upon those that mourn. Upon those that are meek. Upon those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Upon those that are merciful upon those that are pure in heart, upon those that are peacemakers, upon those who in fact endure challenges and persecutions and difficulty in the name of Christ. Blessed are they, in fact, pronouncing upon them opportunities to see God and to ultimately enjoy all of eternity. Now that by itself is a great motivation. But is it not also possible to mislead oneself? Well, someone says, well, I enjoy things that are true. And I enjoy making peace between people. And I enjoy, in fact, the opportunities attached to humility and service. Someone might say, well, I enjoy all of that. Well, maybe eternity in heaven waits for me. Notice what else, though, is on that same slide. Jesus also pointed out the intricacies of worship. And what's involved in proper and correct worship to the Master, Matthew 5, 24? Did He not also point out things like language? It matters what we say. It matters how we say it. Maybe at that point, anybody could begin to feel kind of warm. Well, maybe Jesus is happy with me. Maybe my life is such that these major attributes are things that I have and that things are going to be okay with me at the judgment. I say all of that to say that verse number 21 now comes before us. And in the midst of saying these things, he now says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, I thought you had just said, if you're pure in heart, if you enjoy peacemaking, if you're poor in spirit... If you're a mournful soul, if you try to worship in the way that you should, if you treat others the way you want them to treat you. But now he says, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the surprise on the day of judgment? For there to be perhaps a host of individuals present a host of souls who perhaps endeavored and labored in ways that they thought pleasing, in ways they thought acceptable. And they have arrived at this point in their existence fully expectant to go to heaven, 
fully expectant to enjoy the marvelous climb for all of the ceaseless ages of eternity. And yet on that slide before us, the Lord makes this statement. Now, why don't we pause a moment and say this. If you poll the American people, and this has frequently been done, but you ask them, do you believe that there's a heaven? The overwhelming majority say they do. Do you think you're going to heaven? The overwhelming majority say yes. Most people, you see, think that they're going to heaven. How many times have we attended funerals of someone perhaps that was known rather widely, someone known rather well, and at this funeral service, some official makes a presentation and no doubt lauds the characteristics of the person's life and speaks very kindly and favorably and highly of this person. Maybe nothing was ever said about anything to do with church, the gospel, obedience thereto, or anything of the like. And yet at some point in it, this wonderful pronouncement of he or she's in a better place now than they were before and how great it is. As if... It was just a certainty that that person is going to move on toward the place called heaven. You see, we are all under the illusion, for the most part in America, that we're just all going to end up there, and that there's a place called hell only reserved for the most vile, the most terrible, those most wicked people, but there's very few going to be there. That's what most people think. Jesus slaps most of the people in the face with a text like this one. Let's read it again. Verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Did you notice in this passage, there were those referenced on that day of judgment, and they called Him Lord. They knew who He was. It had been such that they had lived their life in a way that they were mindful of. It's not that they were atheists. It's not that they never gave any appreciation to God. They knew Him. They called Him Lord twice. They referred to Him with a respectful tone. They, it seems, were incredibly expectant to have His blessing pronounced upon them and to go to heaven. They called Him Lord but Jesus makes this statement, Not everybody that calls me that, not everybody that refers to me that way is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that shake us up? Doesn't that cause us to reflect somewhat amazingly? For after all, other verses that highlight God's mercy and His love and His grace and other matters touching those subjects, and yet here we are motivated by the understanding that simply mouthing the name of the Lord or living in some association that we feel is right with Him is not sufficient. The verse then says, But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. On that slide before you, I've asked you to consider that there are many noble qualities that might well be a part of the lives of many who walk upon this planet. Many people enjoy fairness, and they enjoy treating others with neighborliness, and they enjoy an understanding attached to making harmony with others, and trying to live uprightness in terms of their job. They appreciate the responsibility that comes with various avenues in life. 
Most people feel pretty good about that kind of thing, but Jesus didn't mention anything about that. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide as it moves into the next one, Jesus rather plainly said, Calling me Lord is not enough to guarantee entrance to heaven. Referring to me in a respectful tone and having knowledge of the cross and what I did is not going to be sufficient. I've asked you to note the closing of that slide and appreciate that so many times we are quick, are we not, to place a degree of confidence in other things. I've listed them like these. What about human knowledge? We trust what we know. Our realm of experience and our appreciation that attaches to the things with which we're comfortable, we are comfortable in that way. And so in this life, we proceed through it and we justify often that I'm doing the best I know how to do, and surely God will find that acceptable. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, the prophet Hosea stated, God speaking through him in Hosea 4.6. In addition to those kinds of things, how often does Jeremiah say matters similar to this? As he spoke in Jeremiah 10.23, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Let's close that slide then like this. What is critical, as the Lord has just pointed out, is doing the will of God. Sounds like such a simple phrase, doesn't it? To simply do what the will of God is. To do what He tells us to do. To do it with faithfulness. To do it with dedication. To do it with a sense of conviction as to what He has done for us. Let's expound upon this using verse 22. After making these rather powerful statements, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, can you tell me more about this? And so verse 22, he says, Many will say to me in that day, let's make a couple of observations. First, in that day brings to our attention that notable day of judgment, that day when each one will give answer for the deeds done in the body, that day in which a reckoning according to work shall be made of each individual's life. But did you note the very first word in verse 22? It almost captures our attention because a moment ago you and I just said, by and large in the United States of America, the overwhelming majority say they believe in heaven and that they're going there. The Lord said, many will say to me in that day, did you notice? There's going to be quite a bit of conversation taking place on the Day of Judgment. There's going to be a lot of things said. A lot of people are going to find themselves surprised. Look at the surprise that you hear in their voices. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? There shall be those who've preached something in the name of Christ. There are those who have had the courage and the conviction to speak publicly in defense of Christ. That sounds noteworthy. That sounds very commendable. Let's read on. And in thy name have cast out devils. Now you and I today cannot do that. That age is past. 
But in that day and time, there were those who you see were living at a time when demons possessed individuals. And the New Testament frequently makes reference to, to that occurrence. And so you notice that there were those who, at least in that day, had the capacity, the capability of that kind of approach. I would ask you to notice that took quite a bit of courage. What happened in Acts 19 when somebody took the initiative to try and cast out demons out of somebody? Well, you and I remember, and the text is very interesting. Those demons, in fact, flogged the person who, in fact, had done that. It could be dangerous, you see, to try and cast out these demons if one weren't associated with the power of the great master in order to bring it about so readily. Could it be, thus be that our observation is this? On that day of judgment, individuals who had preached, who had taught, who had made public presentations and expositions touching the name of Christ, and we all know that takes courage. And there were those who had claimed to cast out demons in His name. Jesus, I've been a good friend to you. Look at what I have accomplished obviously through your power, but I was able to bring about these wonderful things. The verse closes like this, And in thy name done many wonderful works. Did you notice that there were two particular phrases that occurred in this? Twice it says, in thy name. These people weren't trying to cast out demons for their own glory or edification. They weren't trying, you see, to go about doing these good works just to bring a name to themselves. They were attempting to do this. I did it for you, Lord. I made the effort to cast out those demons and to do many wonderful and powerful things in your name. This sounds incredibly worthy of commendation, doesn't it? And that commendation ties right back into verse 21. Remember, Jesus had said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't this shake us up? Doesn't it stir our heart to recognize the Lord is setting before us some matters we should keep in mind, for we do not want to be surprised on the day of judgment. Isn't it true that it is our desire to live our life in conviction of the Master and to hear Him say that day exactly what we're looking forward to hearing? Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Can you imagine the surprise to have died under the impression that one is going to spend eternity in heaven, to have labored under that illusion only on that day of judgment, to have Him finally declare the words we're about to read in verse 23. For in that verse we read, And then will I profess unto them, This next slide will invite your attention to a couple of final thoughts as we sojourn into that earth-shaking observation. The surprise that you and I again are about to read. These who have again attempted these efforts, they were religious people. Did you notice? He isn't talking about atheists. He isn't talking about people who have no knowledge of Christ. Twice in thy name is mentioned. He isn't referring to individuals who have in fact just lived a rather what they would call good life with no interest in the church, no interest in anything religious. These are religious people. 
And then as verse number 22 closes, that religion attached in them the understanding about, again, the casting out of demons and good works done in His name. There are many good things that the human family, of course, highlights. And as I mentioned, verse number 23 will now say it like this. And then... The word then is an adverb that again describes the occurrence, the timing, if you please. That, that is when this assertion will be made. And then will I. You might want to take note of who the pronouncing agent is. This isn't some committee of affirmation. It isn't some decided group of scholars. This is the Lord. I refers to Jesus Christ Himself. I'm going to be the one to make the judgment pronouncement. And then will I profess unto them. And that word them again refers to these who have perhaps said, Lord, Lord, and yet have not done the will of God. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. And their spiritual mouth drops open. They had died under the expectation of going to heaven. They had lived a life that they thought was connected to the right and satisfactory things. Good works, casting out demons, preaching in His name in some way or other. They had, you see, made an association and religion was in some way important to them. I never knew you. Can you imagine the silence as spiritual and proverbial tears begin to stream down their face and they begin to cry in abject disbelief? What about all these demons I cast out? What about these good works that I did? What about the preaching I did in your name? And you say you don't know me? May you and I never ever find ourselves in this position to be surprised like this. To die thinking heaven is your home and then it's not. Verse 23 goes on to say, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Did you notice? It's not that he had known them at one time and he no longer did. He said, I never knew you. Not one time did I ever know you. Not one second of your entire life did I know you. Isn't that startling? Isn't that surprising from the human standpoint? And then he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now on that slide, I've asked that you consider this. Well, I profess, Jesus said. He will make a profession, a declaration, an assertion, if you please. And as he does this... How powerful is it? We know that His verdict will be pure and that it will be absolute. There will be no court of appeals. In our modern day, we understand when a judge makes some kind of case and some kind of a verdict, unless it's the Supreme Court, we know there are various and sundry levels of courts of appeals. And if you're not happy with the verdict, you can always appeal to a higher court. There will be no higher court. There will be no possibility of overturning the verdict. The verdict is final. And the verdict is absolute. I never knew you, he told them. 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The closing statement of verse 23 is an interesting description, isn't it? You'll notice that the Lord said, You are workers of iniquity. Brother Dennis read it as lawlessness. They had given themselves to engaging in and doing that which was now described as lawlessness. But Lord, we preached in Your name. We built hospitals in Your name. We fed the hungry in Your name. There's no question. Those things are beneficial to the human condition. But what about the spirit of man? They won't get you into heaven. Building hospitals won't do it. Feeding the hungry by itself won't do it. Now those that are Christians long to do those things, but that by itself won't do it. It didn't for them. They had cast out demons, or so they claimed. Done many wonderful works, and now the Lord said, those things I will call works of iniquity. What a surprise. Works in Christ, lost in hell. Isn't it interesting to reflect on how that audience must have reacted and how, of course, countless audience since have also heard the statements that you and I have just studied. At the bottom of that slide, one final set of things. They were told to depart. They were ordered. They weren't allowed to stay and petition. The Lord said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And of course, at that point, the, final, the finality of judgment completed, and all of eternity now stands before them. And then can you imagine the endless regret? The person saying, but I thought, but I supposed. And therein lies the problem. You and I should never suppose that we're saved. We need the Lord to tell me I am. Because He's the one that has the say-so in that. It isn't me. He's the one that can de determine whether I'm saved or not. And if I do what He says, I know I am. It isn't left to some human consideration or a human verdict on that point. It says, The Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. Have you been added to the church? If you haven't, it doesn't matter what else you may have done in life. It doesn't matter what an influencing person you may have been in any number of ways. And I'm not in any way insulting what that might have been. It's just that that won't get you to heaven. It didn't them. What you and I need is for the Lord to know us. Did you notice? He told them, I never knew you. What needs to be done in order for Christ to know me? What needs to be done for Him to know you? Whatever that is, if I don't do it, I should expect my fate to be the same as theirs. And you should expect your fate to be the same as theirs as well. The Bible tells us phrases like these. To just echo this sentiment from yet another perspective, the Thessalonian letter said it like this in 2 Thessalonians 1, "...to you who are troubled, rest with us." When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there again we have knowledge highlighted. In Galatians 3 verses 26 and 27, 
which are final set of verses near the bottom of that slide, we have a beautiful presentation that tells us what we need to do to be in Christ. And if we're in Him, He knows us. Paul could write to that congregation, to that group of congregations, I should say, and to them he would say, as he spoke about the knowledge in a subject like this one, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Belief is critical without any doubt. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Repentance is required without any doubt. Luke 13, 3. Confession is demanded by the Son of God. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. But of those things, none of them put us into Christ. The one thing the New Testament identifies which puts us into Christ, which puts our name into the book of life so that He knows us, is baptism. Have you and I been baptized for the remission of our sins? Acts 2, 38. If you have not, why not today? So that you will not be surprised at the day of judgment, and yet you will be able to hear Him say what you long to hear. might also say, if you have been a faithful Christian, and maybe you have at one time done things like we've read today, taking care of proclaiming and preaching and taking care of other things in a public way in service to Christ, may I be quick to say... It's not that the Lord at that day will say, I never knew you. He wouldn't be able to say that because at one time He did know you. But at this moment, He doesn't. And at that day, unless you repent, He still won't. There's another instance in Scripture when He said, I know you not. You don't want to hear Him say that either. We want Him to know us and to pronounce words like these, Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. Today, as we come to the close of this lesson, we offer the Lord's invitation because it's His. He died on the cross that you and I might enjoy eternal salvation. But His way is the way of faithfulness. If you would wish to become a Christian today, let that take place. We'd be delighted to encourage you, to assist you, But if you are a wayward child of God, one who has walked away from your faith, you need to come back and you don't need to wait. Time is too short. Life is too uncertain. None of us know about tomorrow. If we could be of help today in that way, we would love to do it. If we could assist in either of these ways or merely for prayers of strength and encouragement, we'd like to assist. If you would let us know how we can while together we stand and while we sing.